All right, guys. Well, let's uh, let's pray, and we will we will get started for today. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your marvelous grace, Lord. The things that we sang of, Lord, we know uh, that we have sin, that it is dark, and what can avail? When we ask the question, what can avail to take it away? We're so uh, we're so um, blessed and overjoyed to know that it is the mighty cross that can take it away. And uh, Father, we're gathered here together uh, yet again on another Lord's Day because of that very reason, because the mighty cross has taken away the stain of sin. And uh, Father, we just pray that you would bless us now as we look at your word, as we, um, as we endeavor to know your scripture. Lord, I pray that you would be the teacher here, that you would, uh, Father, open up your word and give us illumination now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we um, have been going through the doctrine of justification, and if you remember last time uh, that we got together, we talked about the Old Testament background of the doctrine of justification. Quickly, let's define what the doctrine of justification is one more time, especially if you're just joining us. When, when the Bible speaks of justification, when systematic theology talks about justification, the doctrine of justification refers to that act of God whereby he declares us to be righteous in his sight. It is a legal or what theologians have called a forensic declaration. That is to say that God sees us or thinks of us in terms of a legal relationship so that prior to justification, we were also on a forensic level with God. And that forensic level is mainly that we were looked upon as transgressors. We were lawbreakers. And because we were lawbreakers, we were guilty. And you remember, we've gone through so many doctrines so far. We went through predestination, we went through election, we went through foreknowledge, and that having to do with uh, the conceptual side of salvation and eternity. And then we began talking about actual salvation. So we talked about uh, effectual calling, we talked about regeneration, um, we talked about uh, the new birth, all of these things. But remember that none of those things remove our guilt as of yet. Election does not remove your guilt. This is the difference, historically speaking. Uh, and ask, ask, feel free to ask questions about any of this, because I know I move quickly. But let me just make this statement, and then I'll get to you. <laughs> Sorry, brother. This is the difference, historically speaking, between what the reformers taught and then what hyper-Calvinists slipped into in terms of eternal justification, believing that our justification took place in eternity past, that it was bound to our election. And it certainly was, but it did not happen there. It happened in time and space. It happened at the cross when Jesus died. That's the difference. Now, Juan. Yes, sir. Just, Sorry, brother. Would that be synonymous with justification? What is that? Imputation. Imputation, yes. Yes, imputation is essentially part of justification. It is when, um, imputation is when the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Um, here's a question for you guys. How many imputations are there in the Bible? Anybody know? I'll say one. Anybody want to add to that? Two? Do I have three? <laughs> Going once, right? There are, in fact, uh, there are, in fact, three imputations in the Bible. 
uh, let, me, let me write this up here for us. Number one, we have the imputation of Adam. Adam's sin is imputed to us. This is our need for justification. That's what we're talking about. Our need for justification arises in the Old Testament principally because of the imputation of Adam's sin. Secondly, the imputation of us, our sin, uh, uh, so our sin on Christ. Right? Our sin is taken and reckoned to Christ's account. That's why it says he was numbered with the transgressors, right? He became, the Bible says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he became sin for us. And then the verse goes on to say what? He knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So then the third one is Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. See that? So Adam's sin is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to Christ. And then Christ's what? Yeah. That's right. His righteousness is given to us. This is the gospel. This is our whole gospel right there. And um, there's nothing more essential than this. We cannot ever imagine uh, anything that would come in conflict with this. We cannot define these things any other way. This is why Rome, that is the Roman Catholic Church, is so wrong in their concept of justification. They have no category for imputation the way that we do. They believe in an infused righteousness, which is different than a forensic righteousness. They believe that God is little by little giving you little bits of grace through the sacrament and the sacerdotal ministry of the Catholic Church, little by little, you are becoming more and more and more righteous. But here's the problem. A Catholic, a Roman Catholic, never ever knows, does he have enough righteousness? So this is why in the Roman scheme, uh, in, the, in Rome's theology, it is actually uh, a presumptuous sin to declare yourself righteous before God. They would say, oh no, that's arrogant to say that you're righteous, that you have enough righteousness to be accepted before God. It's arrogant to them because they think that the righteousness we're talking about is on the basis of our work, not on the basis of Christ's work. You see that? But because the righteousness in question is on the basis of, yes, it's on the basis of merit, but it's Christ's merit. It's his infinite merit. Because of Jesus' infinite merit, we can be declared to be righteous. We can be totally right before God. This is, this is mind-boggling. Now, you see why in the book of Romans, I will never get to our study, but you see, <laughs> that's okay. We don't, you know, hey, man, we're just, you know, those who are, those who are, what does it say? Those who live by the Spirit are led by the Spirit. So we're being led. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. I just want to be clear. Propitiation is different than imputation. Yes, ma'am. So, well, propitiation is talking about what took place at the atonement, right? So, at the atoning work of Christ on the cross, the wrath of God was propitiated, right? Uh, Yeah, the Greek word 
the Greek word you would uh, the Greek word hilasmas, okay, uh, really can have a dual meaning, and this is very um, this is something that theologians like to talk about is that on one level it can mean something like expiation. So if you go to uh, for, I think in some translations of 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 and then 1 John I think it's chapter 4 verse 10 you have you have helasmas mentioned there and and certainly it has the idea of expiation what is expiation expiation is the idea of the removal of sin the removal of sin but propitiation Propitiation. Yeah. Propitiation is the idea of the removal, not of sin, but of the wrath of God. Or as the old uh, Puritan reformers would say, the wrath of God. <laughs> right? God's anger is removed through the atonement, through the blood of Jesus. But at the same time, our sin is removed. And so theologians have grappled with what does this go back to? Where do we get this concept of this dual aspect of the atoning work of Christ, the sacrificial work of Christ? And what they say is this goes back to the Levitical system. So if you go back to Leviticus and you go back to the law, you have places in the law that speak of uh, both aspects, the removal of sin and the removal of wrath. Uh, you can see that in the goats and the two goats that were to be um, that were to be used for the purpose of atonement, right? One goat, uh, they would transfer the guilt of the people and they would send him out of the city, out into the wilderness as a symbol that expiation had taken place. The people's sins had been removed. The other goat was to be slaughtered and poured out as an offering, as an indication that the wrath of God was being satisfied. God has a reason why he does everything, right? This is why Leviticus is quickly becoming one of my favorite books. Because that which used to bore me to death as a young believer, you know, Leviticus, you know, con you know instructions concerning the cleansing of lepers' house. It was. It's just like, <laughs> I I'm reading all this, right? Christ is in all of it. Christ is in all of it. You think about just what, let's say, leprosy. I mean, leprosy is... A wretched condition, right? It causes alienation from the people of God. It forces you to live in leper colonies and things like that. And so then the question is, is how can the leper be cleansed? Well, my dear friends, we know that Jesus cleansed the lepers. That was all pointing to him, to his future power to sanctify, to cleanse us and to make us acceptable, right? Uh, Leviticus chapter one, I think it's verse four, says, it, it gives the, the, the essence of the whole book, how can, it says, it says, so that a man can be acceptable to the Lord. That's what the whole book of Leviticus is about, is how can one be holified to the Lord? How can we be made holy, righteous, pure? Well, not on our own merit, but on the merit of Christ. Not our sacrifice, sacrifice of Christ, right? That's right. So, that's the difference between imputation and propitiation. And justification is part and parcel to that. 
the atonement, the atonement of Jesus results in our propitiation, our expiation, and upon faith, God justifies us. He imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. And uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. Because what I'm saying is very, very risky. <laughs> it's very risky, and it's not the first time somebody has thought about this. But what I'm, what I am arguing is that the merit of Christ was infinite. Infinite merit, they say. Right? This is, we're talking about the active and passive obedience of Christ. Right? The active obedience of Christ is speaking about what? The cross. Huh? Huh? Landon is right in the sense that it is to fulfill all righteousness. So this is speaking mainly about Jesus' life. Life. Why didn't Jesus go to the cross as an infant? Wasn't he righteous enough then? Of course he was. Why did he have to live? 33 years. To fulfill all righteousness, that's right. To fulfill the law. To obey the law. Perfect, active obedience. Now, what about the passive obedience of Christ? What does that refer to? That refers to the cross. And the reason we say passive obedience is because we're speaking about what he suffered versus what he did. What he suffered from others, right? He suffered, uh, Acts chapter 2, right, says that he was taken by, 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 by blood-guilty men, right? By the hands of sinful man, he was crucified. So Jesus suffered in our place. So the active and the passive obedience of Christ merited a perfect, infinite righteousness before God. And this, I am saying, is imputed to our account on the basis of faith, right? How does the hymn go? The moment a sinner believes, how's it go? Where's Jonathan? Huh? Oh, do you know that? Do you know that that hymn I'm talking about? Oh, I can't remember. It's just, it escapes me now. I can talk about theology, but not hymns. Uh, but what I'm saying is that what we possess is an infinite righteousness. What infinite righteousness? The righteousness of Christ. So what I'm, I'm telling you is that you and I, in the eyes of God, are infinitely righteous. Now, that's on a positional level I'm talking about. Practically, you're like, well, I don't know, this morning I wasn't really infinitely righteous. <laughs> right? Amen. Somebody's like, amen. Right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Come on, man. Let's, let's be real. I was sitting at a Pentecostal church once, and a lady behind me, she kept yelling out, Tell the truth! <laughs> so we got to tell the truth. Um, so, why is that risky? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So what's the argument there in Romans? What, what, uh, that's right. What Paul's been arguing is on the basis of justification, chapter 4, chapter 5, if we are totally righteous in the second Adam, right, the second man, going back to uh, chapter 5, verse 18, as a result of the obedience of the second Adam, we have been righteous. We, we are declared righteous, right? Righteousness would reign through him to us, right? Then, then what are we saying? Because we're still in the presence of sin. Are we saying we're so righteous that it doesn't matter what we do, we'll never become unrighteous? No, 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 I'm saying yes, it, yes, it does. My dear friends, if you walk out of here today and sin, even grievously, your righteousness is not diminished in the eyes of God. Tracking with me now? No. How can you both be poor at the same time? You can be righteous and not righteous too. Very good question. That actually, Tony, Tony's my neighbor. Say hi. Stand up, Tony. Take a bow. No, I'm just joking. I'm joking. <laughs> That's right. Okay, sit down. There you go. Sit down. Stop disrupting the meeting, uh, uh, Tony. <laughs> That's an excellent question, Tony. The reformers grappled with this question. When I say the reformers, I'm talking about those Christians at the Protestant Reformation at the turn of the 16th, 17th century, okay? They grappled with this issue of what was called simoustus hustus peccador, which means simultaneously just and sinner. Don't you guys feel like that's who you are? <laughs> right? You don't dare deny this, right? We are justified in the sight of God, but you also don't dare deny that there is indwelling sin, right? Because the Bible also says, let him who says he has no sin be a liar. He's a liar. The truth is not in him. So here we are approaching the tension of Romans chapter 7. The things that I would, have, that I would want to do, I cannot do. That which I don't want to do, I end up doing. Uh, can anybody bear witness with that? Right? Some would like to strip that from the Christian and say, well, that's talking about pre-conversion uh, talking about pre -conversion experience. I don't think so. That's my, I, I take the traditional view. There's a non-traditional view, and many, many good godly men actually subscribe to the non-traditional view, uh, and, and I, I am a traditionalist. I would point you to the commentary by John Murray. Yes, sir. Well, you were talking earlier. Would that have to do with them deciding whether to let the people back in the church that were going to be persecuted and then denied the faith? And, wanted, and they decided what they wanted to do with them? Was to take them back in or not? Are you, I know what you're talking You're talking about the Donatist controversy? Maybe. I don't know. It was something they were reading in history. Right? Yeah. Well, in the third century, there's a controversy called the Donatist controversy. Well, right where under persecution of Rome, when it got so bad, scores of professing Christians were denying the faith to escape persecution. Then an ecclesiastical controversy, meaning a church controversy, erupted, saying, well, now that persecution has subsided, we let these people back into the church? We just saw them deny Jesus Christ and go back to the world. And now that persecution's gone, they want to come back and act like everything's okay? See how that can get? Sticky? <clears throat> but um, that's the Donatist controversy. But here we're talking about something else. We're talking about how is it possible for us to be infinitely righteous in the sight of God and yet sin. And God still accepts us. 
The reason why, dear friends, is because he accepts us on the basis of Jesus' merit, not our own. And guess what? Look at, uh, did you see that? Verse 2 of Romans 6, may it never be. How shall, see, the, the question is a moral question. How? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So it must be, therefore, that the principle of salvation is, is this. It leads to an authentic spirituality. It does not lead to legalism, the attempt to try to justify yourself, and it doesn't need, lead to antinomianism or lib, libertarianism, the idea that you are free to do whatever you want because you are righteous, right? That's actually rooted in an ancient uh, heresy of the uh, late first and second century, known as Gnosticism. The early Gnostics believed in what was known as a Platonic dualism between matter and uh, between matter and uh, spirit, between the physical and the immaterial, right? The visible and the invisible. And what they taught in the early centuries was. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. God doesn't care about that. He cares about the state of your soul. And so as long as you love God in your soul, does this kind of ring any relevant bells right now? Right? It doesn't really matter how you live. And so the early Gnostics ended up going into, into two, either two areas. The early Gnostics end up either going fully, full-blown into uh, debauchery immorality or into asceticism. You know what asceticism is? Asceticism is the idea of, of, of treating your body harshly so that you might gain holiness and uh, self-denial. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Mother Teresa is a perfect example of an ascetic, an ascetic mystic, right? She believed by taking vows of poverty and afflicting yourself that way, that that was a form of piety, right? Which the Bible doesn't teach us to take a vow of poverty, okay, or things like that. So the Bible teaches neither asceticism nor legalism, right? Or, or antinomianism. Antinomianism just simply means to be lawless, right? To be lawless. So we have to have the right tension Paul says in Titus, the grace of God teaches us what? To what? To deny ungodliness, spoken by the woman who memorized Titus. I expect you to know that. <laughs> um, any questions? A small one. I, 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 I think I, I, I caught something that he was saying. Okay. Just about the Donatus thing. Okay. Um, where... You have almost like a Peter incident where you deny Christ at this, at this scene, and um, and so dealing ecclesiastically with the issue of people coming in and out of the church, Matthew 18, and we're um, talking about righteousness. I haven't studied this much, um, but he says, "Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." And um, Talking about um, how to deal with brothers in the how, how to deal with brothers in the church and excommunication. What is this? So, so how do you explain a, uh, a Christ bought righteousness for you 
being in the church, being and then and then in a disobedient way, not being you know not submitting to the authority of the church, and then the loosing in heaven, you know whatever you loose on earth. Um, How do you understand that? I, I, I see it as I, I see that as a as a church discipline, um, and I, I struggle with I struggle with that passage a little bit, and I don't I don't necessarily do I haven't done a lot of research on it. I mean I I've just kind of gone over it a few times and and but um, the um, binding and loosing what does that refer to? Um, as far as you know, I I I I I see a resemblance in something that was bound in heaven is now lost in heaven, or what what was yeah, the English is a little bit misleading because the, the Greek tenses in that, in that verse right there are actually what's known as perfect tense verbs, okay? So literally you can translate it, whatever you bind in heaven would have already been bound, uh, bind on earth would have already been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth would have already been bound in heaven. So it's not as if heaven is responding to us as much as we are following the rhythm of heaven. And what it's talking about in the context of Matthew 18 is that God's vested authority in the church is bound to the decisions of the church. And so in binding and loosing, what that's referring to, boy, is that a passage taken completely out and twisted completely miserably out of context. But what he is referring to there is that when excommunication takes place, the authority of heaven binds the matter. That we are in step with heaven. That the authority of heaven itself is in step with the decision of the church. Very powerful. It's very powerful. And whatever we loose, so what loosing is referring to there is when we resolve the matter, when, we, when a person is forgiven. Uh, Paul says a similar thing, I think it's in 1 Corinthians. I can't think of it right now. Um, uh, it, I think it's in 1 Corinthians somewhere. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, whatever you forgive, I forgive. Same type of idea. So basically Paul is just saying, I affirm the decision of the local church. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the authority of heaven itself is with you when you do the steps of church discipline properly. You will have the blessing of heaven. It's very powerful. And, you know, think about, think, about how, um, think about how unfortunate it is for many churches who no longer practice church discipline because of fear and this and that, right? This is why the reformers were very keen on this. They thought, no, 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 this is a very important issue, church discipline. Because, because here's the other thing, too, is we just look at the discipline issue. You're excommunicating somebody. You know, what is the Salem witch trials? I mean, right? That's the way our culture thinks about it now. But they miss the glorious restoration process. That when a brother or sister is restored to fellowship, it is a beautiful gospel picture. And they never get that blessing because they never, they never, um, they're not committed to the tough love that the Bible calls us to. And so uh, having done church discipline myself numerous times, um, I was going to say unfortunate, but it's not unfortunate because it is a blessing either to protect and preserve the church, but I've seen the blessedness of the restoration process as well. 
and the edification that results in the local church as a result of that. It's just, it's just incredible. But, um, but yeah, so what you have in the denial. So let me get back to maybe what's, what the question underneath this oh, is. Yeah, no, I... is. Is, is, it, is it, are you guys struggling with what if a person apostatizes? What happens to his righteousness? Like Peter, because you mentioned of, Peter. Right, because I... Cause he so, denied the Lord. Right. And, um, and you know, and, and Scripture teaches you, whoever denies me on earth, like, you know, the fathers and the yes. son, they, they deny him. And so you have the same thing with Peter, denying Christ, and, and the restoration, of course, that also took place. Um, yes. Um, I, I think I was just reading Matthew Henry. I don't mean to start to take up some No, no, it's okay. I was reading, so Matthew Henry was saying that even Jesus was sent out of synagogues. You know, he was even pushed out. Oh, yeah. And so it's like only when this excommunication is done properly and it's done in a, in a, in a righteous, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, a biblical way. That's right. Does it have any kind of power and authority? That's right. And, and so. Oh, yes. Um, but I think that, I think that like, it's almost a, the, the assumption that someone would be um, righteous before, righteous in the eyes of God, denying someone as maybe Peter would have, and then being kicked out. And, and so, I guess so yeah. So biblically, I mean, just for us to understand this, there is a there is two there's two aspects to apostasy. There is permanent and temporary apostasy. On a temp, Peter is a prime example of a temporary apostasy. Was it grievous? Was it real? You better believe it was real. He denied the Lord Jesus Christ with cursings, swearing that he did not know him. This is an apostasy. This is apostolic apostasy. Okay? And, uh, uh, and yet we know that Jesus so loved Peter that he restored him and he reinstalled him into the church. What a glorious picture of temporary apostasy. Who is a picture of permanent apostasy? <laughs> so Judas, the pro- <laughs> so Judas, the prototypical apostate, right, is a perfect example. We could say it like this: Judas is an example of permanent apostasy unto perdition, where there is no possibility of re- reconciliation. There is no possibility of restoration whatsoever. And that is always presented in Scripture as a dire warning to all. Right? We're in Hebrews. We're studying the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, um, apostasy is front and center because you have to understand what's going on in the early church. Jesus Christ has literally shattered the world in two. There was for millennia a division between Jew and Gentile. It is the greatest ethnic racial divide in the history of planet Earth, Jew-Gentile. Okay. And then comes in Christ, brings in the new covenant where he reconciles the two, what he calls, what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, the two men, the two groups, in other words, Jew-Gentile, and makes one man. And what he means by that is one new humanity, one new human race, right? So that Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is no longer any distinction between Jew, Gentile, male, female, Scythian, barbarian, right, free, bond, 
All of these groups are now one in Christ, right? I mean, just look in this room, right? We have black, white, brown. I'm still praying for those yellows. Angels. Can be Asians in here? We need some more. A- <laughs> You're not Asian, man. Okay, 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 okay. You're a shade. You're a shade off, though. You're not. <laughs> I'm praying for Korean. Koreans are crazy. Anyway, I love Koreans. They're psycho for God. I mean, you ever pray with Koreans? Yikes. <laughs> Roof will fall down the place. Anyway. Um, So all of us are now one in Christ, and because of the work of Christ, the Jews have to figure out, what are we going to do? All these unclean dogs are coming into the people of God. Who's Jewish in here? So all of us would be considered goyim, Gentile dogs, unclean. Because we are outside of the covenants, outside of the fathers, outside of the promises, outside of the people of God. We would all be unclean. And for millennia, that is the way it worked. If you wanted to be clean, you had to join the Jewish people as a proselyte. You had to come under the old covenant. You had to be circumcised. You had to begin going through the institutions of the Levitical law. You had to begin sacrificing and doing all of the rituals that were required of any good Jew. And then you would be a proselyte considered to be under the covenant. By now, it is by faith. Turn to uh, Galatians, if you would, chapter 2. This has to do with justification, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I don't feel so bad. Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> oh, boy. Beginning in verse... Uh, you know, the whole thing demands explanation, going back to verse 11. This is where Peter, and notice Peter still sinning. Man, that Peter, (laughs) this is probably 20, 30 years after the denial. What is Peter doing again in Antioch? He is essentially denying the gospel. Because before he used to hang out with the Gentiles and he was eating bacon and, you know, he was singing their music and getting his groove on with the Gentiles. And then here comes these Jews from James and Peter retreats. And he says, I wasn't eating that. I wasn't listening to that. Peter, yes, you were. Why are you tripping? (laughs) You were eating that stuff with us. We were having ham sandwiches. (laughs) Right? Why Why are you acting as if you were not fellowshipping with us Gentiles? You hypocrite. So Paul has to go and get in his grill and tell him, look, man. You're out of step with the gospel. You are out of, you're out of line. You're denying the gospel. This is not what the gospel is about, that when Jews come, you separate yourself again. That's the complete opposite of what the gospel did. And so, Paul says in verse 14, he says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So in other words, you were living as a Gentile, and now, now that these religious Jews came around from James, that's disputed. How can they have come from James? 
and had sort of a legalistic still attitude, uh, sort of questions whether they authentically came from James. James is the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And so the question then is, you know, were these really commissioned by James? Were they saying they were from James? That's another matter. But then in verse 15, he begins to articulate again the basis of our just, our just standing before God. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, what he, said, what he means there is categorically. This is the same thing as saying the Jews possess the covenants, the promises, the fathers, the Messiah according to the flesh. That's what he means. When he says sinners from among the Gentiles, he means, see, the Gentile world was considered the sphere of, of, of the profane. If you were not in the covenant people of God, you were, you were in the realm of the profane. Okay? And it's, oh, it's really interesting. Boy, how much time do we have? It's really interesting because Gentile then becomes a catchphrase in the, in the Pauline theology. It becomes sort of a catchphrase for unbelief. If you're in unbelief, if you're not a Christian, you are in, you are now considered a Gentile, which places you in the category of, of being alienated from God, needing to be justified, needing to be reconciled to God. It's just amazing, amazing what Paul does. Um, I've preached the book of Galatians. Man, I want to preach it again, I tell you. I missed so much. Oh, it's called sermon remorse. <laughs> it really is. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, as the Jews have taught, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. See, he has to reorient this whole church under the true gospel. How is someone just? What Peter did was so contrary to the gospel because it said that your acceptance before God has to do with what you eat, how you behave, how you dress, your culture. You have to, and, and, and sadly, I don't know if you know about this, but there are many uh, uh, Christians who buy into all of this sort of messianic, Jewish, right, Zionistic type expressions of spirituality. They think that the if they can get into the types and shadows and the festivals and, you know, I've, you know, a friend was telling me that he has someone I need to talk to because they're all wrapped up in the feasts and the moons and all of that and the Sabbaths and all of that. And I think, ugh, I really, I always want to help, but <laughs> I've dealt with that before. You don't understand. It becomes very emotional to the person. They get very mystically and emotionally attached. And to me, it is a very, very dangerous very, very dangerous expression of Christianity. I believe Messianic uh, Jews are saved, of course. They believe in Jesus Christ, they have faith in, but I, I do not accept that if you, if you want to, what the Bible teaches is you can go back to observing Passover, celebrating the feasts in the church, going back to moons and Sabbath observances and all of this. I'm sorry, it does not tell us that. Matter of fact, go to chapter four, verse 10. Paul's, Paul's view is a complete opposite. You observe days and months and seasons and years? This is like, he's like, he can't even believe it. I fear for you <laughs> that perhaps I labored over you in vain. Isn't that powerful? 
Because why? Because when a person moves backward, even in the name of, no, 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 but we're, but this is a Christian Jewish thing. Okay. But remember, we are not to move backwards in redemptive history. We're to move forward. Right? The blood of the new covenant speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. Don't go backwards in redemption. Go forward. Or just at least stay in step with God. Kim, I think you were first, and then Nancy. Yes, ma'am. Pastor, this is a close friend of mine that I've been ministering to that is into the Messianic Jewish tradition. And um, every time I talk to her, you know, I, I probe her, and I, you know, of course I share scripture, because that's what she'll always go back to. She'll always go back to, you know, not eating pork, and then she'll go to, she observes the Sabbath. They don't do anything on Saturday. All these rituals... <coughs> And I'm always just, you know, asking and making sure, you know, that it's by faith, you know, that we are saved and it's not by faith. And she'll be in agreement. But it's her, it's her verbiage, it's her actions that draws me to the conclusion that, like you were saying, it's dangerous. And I'm seeing that because she keeps clinging to those, those works. Yes. And, but yet when you share the gospel, when you share scripture to um, get away from the works, she'll, she'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I just do it because, you know, it's a sacrifice. It's something, and, you know, pork is gross, and she'll, and every time, and she, she'll, she'll read, so all she reads is the, um, this Jewish Bible. Uh-huh. And I had asked you a long time ago, of course, you didn't have time to respond, I'm sure, but she was trying to get me to read it and I was a little nervous because I mean yeah it has a lot of Hebrew language and all that but she follows this one rabbi and follows this old testament she's not I mean she even goes to a reformed church and she yeah. sticks to those teachings so I'm trying to yeah. warn, kind of warn her yeah. that it's dangerous it's very dangerous and um, I actually many many years ago I had friends who were getting into messianic um, uh, exp- you know um, type churches and um yeah, it, it becomes almost cultic. It, it does. It becomes, there's buzzwords, there's mind control going on. Don't use the word Jesus anymore. It's Yeshua. Uh, that's his name. You know what I mean? So they expect the entire global church to use the Hebrew word Yeshua instead of Esau or, you know, Jesus or Jesus or, you know, in our language, you know, everybody's got to say the Jewish word. You know, these kinds of things that it becomes a false it becomes like a veneer of spirituality, but it's really nothing. It's nothing because it's not the gospel, right? The gospel is on the basis of faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone and leave everything else alone, right? Nancy? So in, in the early church when um, a Jew got saved, did they immediately forsake the offerings, the rituals? And now, so was it so dramatic that you would know yeah, the early church did. And then what you find is, um, yeah, so immediately there was a break from temple, a break from synagogue, a break from Sabbath observance. They met on the Lord's Day on Sunday, right? So there was a breach. There was an immediate breaking off. But as time went on, we know the influence of, was who, who, of those who are known as the Judaizers, Right? who were professing faith in Christ, but 
asking for returning back to Jewish ceremonies and rituals like circumcision. Matter of fact, Paul says in um, Galatians chapter 5, verse uh, verse 3, he says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. See, so this is, this is what amounts to going back to law observance, is that if you're going to go back to law observance or seek righteousness through law observance, now you are bound to the entirety of the law. Every jot and tittle, baby, now you got to keep it. You have been severed from Christ. You who were seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Amazing, remarkable. And so this is why Paul, in the, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, he's pounding away at faith, 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 right? I love that scene in the old Luther movie, black and white Luther movie, right? Where the color one is really good, but the black and white one is really, really, really amazing. And uh, he's talking to his mentor and he says, and his mentor tells Luther, you know, Martin Luther, if you take away all of these precious things, all of these relics and sacraments and all of these things, the indulgences, all of these things that you consider rubbish, what will you put in their place? And Luther says, Christ. <laughs> Just Christ. We don't need anything else to be righteous in the sight of God. This is what, this is what uh, Hebrews is talking about, counting the blood of the covenant a common thing. It's just one among many. The blood of Jesus is just one path to spirituality among many other ways, right, to be spiritual. No, it is not a common thing. It, it, the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his blood. Trish? Yeah, we do. Even as believers, we still think. Or if you've ever sinned, you sin, and you turn, all right, now I'm going to start reading my Bible now, man. I'm going to church. Now I'm really getting serious, man. Right? And the Lord's up there just like, sure. Right. See you in six months. We're out of time. You got the last word, like Bill O'Reilly says. Amen. Um, because, you know, if you haven't been there yet, you, there will be a time in your walk where, where you where you get that something where it does condemn you, or you don't, don't feel right, righteous before the Lord. But we have to remember God is greater than our hearts condemning us. We have to continue to speak the truth to ourselves and, um, yeah, wash ourselves in the Word. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this is, you know, where does the language of justification come from? It comes from the Old Testament. Every place the Old Testament talks about the need for forgiveness, the need for mercy, the need for pardon, the need to be forgiven by God. The psalmist that says that he will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's where the doctrine of justification is rooted, is in all of that. You know? 
Yeah, let's pray because we're out of time. Father, Lord, thank you for the glory of the gospel. Lord, I thank you that the gospel unmitigated is what we need. We need the pure gospel. We need the gospel of God, as Romans chapter 1, verse 1 says, the gospel of God. That is the good news that God has given us through Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, even on a practical level, not to seek out ways to justify ourselves, but to simply believe. That is to put our faith, our trust, our reliance, to lean all of our hope solely on the infinite merit of Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus, the God-man, who was able to obey your law always. And uh, because of his obedience, Lord, we can be declared righteous in your sight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.